Welcome to the Talking Story Podcast. We'll be your hosts for season one. I'm Lorenzo Roel Flores Please. I'm Ezra Kikaway Cook. And I'm Oceana Sawyer. In this space, as people of the global majority, we reflect on our experiences living here in Jefferson County, a semi-rural region of the Olympic Peninsula, which is primarily white folks. This is us talking to us about us for us. On this episode, Making Schools Habitable for PGM, Lorenzo and I sit down with Aaron Hall and Cherry Geelan, educators at Salish Coast Elementary School. Let me first introduce you to Aaron. Aaron Hall is an Indigenous member of our community from the Salish, Kalispe, and Katunaha people. He is a father and educator currently working at Salish Coast Elementary School in Port Townsend. Among his goals are to create a sustainable PGM community with youth and their families from our area. Now, Cherry Geelan has a special place in Lorenzo and I's heart, as she was both of our elementary school teacher at one point. Cherry has lived in Port Townsend, Washington for 12 years with her partner and her two children. She was born in Los Angeles, California to immigrant parents from Thailand. She is a bachelor in ethics and women's studies, an MED in reading instruction and curriculum, a national board certification in literacy, and recently became certified as a dyslexia therapist. This is her 20th year in teaching. As a reading interventionist in the area, it is her goal to spread the word around literacy being a social justice issue. How does your perspective as a person of color affect your teaching positively? What skills do you value in teaching that other faculty might sideline or not think about? I guess growing up with parents who immigrated to the country, I've always kind of felt like I was other myself. I feel like experiencing what it's been like to be considered other in so many realms, it makes me almost more conscious on this other level of what I'm relating to my students or thinking about the kids who I teach and how they would feel as well. So I feel like in terms of affecting my teaching positively, maybe just noticing more, whether that's race or gender or little bits of neurodiversities, just really trying to make children who might have that experience as feeling other, maybe working with them to be able to bring out some more positivity for them. I feel like that's what I would love to do with my teaching. And even though right now a lot of the education realm is really focused on social-emotional learning, in general, I feel like that's always been in the back of my mind, growing up and knowing how it felt to be considered something else or seen as something else or assumptions made of you because people think that you're something else. So really trying to be in tune to supporting kids, not just academically, but socially and emotionally as well. Coming from my particular background and stuff, just maybe kind of piggybacking off of what Cherry said is, yeah, when I was younger, you kind of feel as the other, especially because there's this dominant society. And I also know that even as a kid, I wasn't in that. So I don't know if I had the perspective, or at least I didn't label it like that as a kid, but knowing when something's being said that we wouldn't do in our own home communities or the way teachers talk, the 
lexicon and the words they use to explain things, you know, that that might not be something that was done in my home community or family or neighborhood. So, yeah, I think it's kind of like seeing yourself as the other, but also there's that times when it seems foreign, like the mirror perspective of that. I didn't sometimes see it as like I was the other. I sometimes felt like I know. I wouldn't say it like that, or that don't make sense. And I know a bunch of you know kids that were in the same class with me were, were kind of like inquisitive, like that look when they know you know. <laughs> really, just means you don't understand what the person's talking about, or or that you don't agree, you know, because it's a lot of stuff in education is just perspective. This reminds me of when we pre-interviewed Aaron. You talked about why you're pro kids being skeptical. And I think this is like how we can kind of jump into that. Because you're talking about essentially making your teaching more accessible to students of different sort of backgrounds, different understandings, even down to like the language you're using. But then also kids that maybe don't agree with things that are being taught or said in like the status quo. So like, what does that mean to you? Well, I definitely, I took notes on that. Yeah? Awesome. <laughs> because, uh, some of the stuff I was thinking about like after our conversation, especially I saw, um, I do want to clarify when I talk about skepticism, I guess tangentially I was in agreement or at least getting my ideas from philosophical skepticism, but Mm. definitely there's like those two big camps, like there's that real epistemological, transcendental, you know, the possibility of all knowledge is is not real. Mm. I don't go down (laughs) that, that strain of thought, but I definitely think that like a good, suspension of judgment or sometimes having to help teach or like let the kids know that when they are feeling that suspension of judgment because they are not seeing concrete evidence of something i think that is something as an educator also it's just you know these things are just reflexive or maybe reactionary on some levels but like my own experiences in education like i want to make sure that I let those kids know that, yeah, you, you should be skeptical about something. The burden of the weight of acquiescence is big. They're always like, I have to listen to this guy because he's the teacher, or I have to listen to society because, you know, there's one way. I just kind of, yeah, even in with the little guys, just impart on, hey, it's okay, if you don't agree with me, then there's ways to have those like critique something to weigh in your opinion by using the evidence around you. If it's in your heart or if it's in your own background as a human being, like how we're these cultural beings too, like what you're bringing that lens from your family and your home culture. A lot of times you're going to come in conflict with, even if it's like unconscious conflict, like what Mm -hmm. a teacher or a pedagogical system might be telling you is right or wrong. So yeah, I always try to, Especially in history, (laughs) those classes and stuff like that, you know, looking at perspective and teaching how to be skeptic, to weigh those things with evidence, wherever that evidence is coming from. I don't always feel like education these days will often set kiddos up to want to question, though. I feel like so many times I've gone through that experience of, is this okay to bring up in a classroom in America? (laughs) And... When I taught in Opepo, I felt like, okay, we're considered other anyway. (laughs) So while we are being considered other, then I'm going to pull out these things that I want to. And a lot of it did end up being like social justice talks and things like that. Or 
questions that would come up from the kids themselves, even in something as simple as performing a play. Mm-hmm. Why, why are all the girls always often having to take on the roles as men in the plays, but we don't see it the other way, like questions mm-hmm. that kids bring up and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then being like, let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's have like a seminar and let's kind of ask questions. What do you think? Where do you think this came from? What do you think it is? And I miss that a lot about having a classroom to have those kinds of open discussions because as an interventionist, it's like very, very specific. When I do, you know, come in, here's hardcore reading instruction. Okay. I want to try to give you a little bit of social emotional support while you're in there as well. And then off you go. But having that classroom community, I really miss that piece of being able to build those kinds of discussions around their questions that they have. Mm-hmm. Especially when kids are young, I feel like the stuff, like the lessons come up more naturally because you're still wondering about just everyday things. Even down to like preschool, I feel like mm-hmm. you could have like mm-hmm. kids that are just like coming to the classroom and then they, they notice something they're like, what does that mean or what's mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So you feel like that kind of guiding, nurturing kind mm-hmm. of like seeing the things as they come up and then helping the question versus like having a set task yes 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 and i i really miss that because i I really do feel like education doesn't necessarily set up our kids to feel comfortable enough to want to ask questions and then when when they transition to like say middle school it doesn't always seem like the kind of realm where questions are Mm -hmm. allowed to be asked so how do we put that into the minds of kids while they're in that flexible stage of like yes like please keep asking questions as you get Mm -hmm. older because just because we're adults doesn't mean that we're always right. So I know that you mentioned talking about how school can be seen as like a direct path to the workforce in Western society. And we talked previously talking about like how there's this sort of blind following of authority that some teachers seem to think is how students should act because maybe that's what they grew up doing. They grew up just, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And so there's this kind of like internalized idea of like, that's what we should do. So like that that's what schools sort of designed for, but then I know you mentioned that those others fall into that camp of like the prison pipeline. Oh yeah. Oh gosh, I feel like it all kind of layers together. You know, like what is the purpose of school? And I and even like going back to like the history of like why school was created in general, and a lot of it was to create that beautiful workforce, these people that are gonna go out and mm-hmm. and do all these professional jobs and things like that. But humans don't fit into a box. So it makes it a little bit tricky. And then we're where I start feeling like it's that school-to-prison pipeline sense is more than what do you do with all these kids who are not fitting into these boxes neatly as they're going on their academic journey, what's going to happen to them? And then ultimately it often ends up being like incarceration or some other sad things. And for you and your line of work as an interventionist, how does that relate to students' reading skills? Because I know that's, something, that's kind of your expertise. Erin might be able to speak to this too. We've had some nice conversations about thinking about with our children at school, we have so much more to support than just their academics. Say it's the type of child where we're noticing here come a lot of behavioral concerns. Why are they acting out? What's going on? We know there's a lot of layers of trauma and things like that. And sometimes education can be trauma in itself if the child has other things in their background that's keeping them from being successful, whether that is a neurodiversity like dyslexia or it's poverty or just access to things it can feel really scary for a child to feel like they don't have someone who's there to support them whether academically or social emotionally and then when you fast forward to the future it's like we see 
really high illiteracy rates in prison and things like that, that almost kind of correlate to what we already start seeing with the kids who are acting out in school. Typically, those are the ones who are struggling in some kind of academic way. So that's my goal as an interventionist, that when I have them for the 45 minutes to an hour, about four times a week. That is one thing I'm thankful for in our district, is that we are at least trying to start early intervention. We're trying. We're trying. It's a big system to change. But if I can help at least support that reading bit, that can open so many more doors for that child that wouldn't have been opened, whether it's because of poverty or their race or their gender or other things that are happening. But if we can at least remedy that reading, that's going to really allow them to set them up for more Yeah, systems. like reach, reach their goals and things like that and not just feel like they're going to follow in their family's footsteps and end up in prison or selling drugs or some other things. I feel like it's a bigger thing than just correcting some reading. It's kind of a big thing of seeing literacy as a social, social justice issue as well. Because who, mm-hmm. you know, when you're looking at the demographics of who's struggling and things like that, it's, you know, it's not surprising. It's often our, like, the children of color, people who have poverty backgrounds, people who are neurodiverse. It, it just all kind of layers. Mm-hmm. Race, gender, all of it compounds. So even though I'm, you know, my job is focused on helping them with their reading skills, I feel like so much more than that. Yeah, I feel like that's the importance of having diversity in our teachers in our school district, right? I mean, it's going to be teachers that are people of color that are going to be more likely to recognize these sort of things or these struggles with students, especially when it comes to disenfranchised groups and students that are struggling just due to reasons like that, right? That's why we need more teachers like you guys. You guys are both great, and I'm glad that we have you in our school district. Thank you. We can use this as a segue to talk about the BIPOC group that you guys started in the school, because it is a limited amount of teachers who are people of color, and it's even less in some of the other schools. Mm-hmm. I think Zero unless it's changed. Zero at the high school. <laughs> How many at the middle school? Is it like maybe one? one or two? I know zero at the high school. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we yes. got Daryl, but he's not a teacher. Yeah. So. <laughs> and before Daryl, who we just hired this year, there was nobody. So in the community members that would come in because they didn't actually have that yep. representation. We would do the equity team. meetings. I went yeah. to a couple of them, and it would just be like, yeah, that way we could get some perspectives from some of the teachers at other schools, but most of the people that came to the equity meetings were just parents mm-hmm. or teachers who were not people of color, which is, I guess it's fine for that type of meeting to have all the different perspectives, but, you know, and, and it kind of took the pandemic and Zoom to really, like, put that in my face, how few of us there really are, because I, I remember that moment of shock, too, when they asked if we wanted to be in a, a BIPOC-affiliated breakout room, right. and, and, you know, we all must have said yes, and then, and then they're like, here you go, and, and there's four of us on the screen, which is really <laughs> shocking. <laughs> and we're like, hey, we're all at the same school. But in that way, it kind of became beautiful, too. Because even before we started talking about creating the BIPOC group at the elementary level, I feel like it it kind of paved the way for just more conversations between us as BIPOC teachers at the elementary level. Because we were noticing things, you know, like, who's getting suspended a lot? Who, you know, who's yeah. struggling with this? Why is this kind of happening? find it as a teacher, like, because I taught in San Francisco for many years before coming back up north, and, like, I was at an elementary school where almost everybody was a person of color, Mm -hmm. and so it flip-flops, so it's noticeable as somebody who 
walks in these alternative <laughs> cultures. And so, yeah, I, I found my first year there, I would often go to like Wanda's classroom or just getting to know Cherry. But yeah, there was like certain other colleagues and stuff. I guess that's natural, you know, there's enough commonality that it felt safe, you know, where you could go in and talk about certain things. Sometimes it's that code switching that society teaches you that you must have and that we all know we gotta have for interviews or how to talk to parents or whatever and then there are times when it just feels good just to like drop the masks for a moment and just like take a, a breath of fresh air yeah and as we moved towards the bsu the bipoc student union we had so many deep conversations but and we didn't entirely know what we were going to do or how we were going to roll it out. And I kind of liked that in the sense that each day was like thoroughly planned out. We had some ideas and like, okay, Cherry's going to run this one and I'll run this one and get some friends from the community to be guest speakers and Wanda could do this one. And we moved like that and it was kind of neat because it was so different than the daily routine, the daily put your, you know, face to the grindstone and just like move on through the day. Like if there was like an ebb and flow, it was kind of slightly improvisational on that level and that felt free. It felt good to even just be able to like, I want to try this out. I want to bring this perspective. This is something that I thought about as a kid or when I was brand new in education and I saw something that was not there. It kind of gave us an opportunity to be more creative and artistic. So it's not just data-driven numbers, numbers, data-driven, data-driven numbers. <laughs> and for me, I feel like I have a very different perspective, even from other teachers of color, too, because, like, some of that stuff is so soul-crushing to me. I'm so used to, in my family and in my culture, that, like, everybody's your aunties and your uncles. And that's what I try to bring with the kids. And so... In those environments when we were doing like the BSU stuff or just in my daily routine in the classroom, I try to bring as much of that as possible, that kind of slowing down of that authoritarian culture and just make it more a safe space, a fun space, family space, you know. And that's kind of what the BSU ended up feeling like to me a lot. It was, it was pretty. Mm -hmm. I know we were kind of shocked at the number of kids who showed up too. Okay. I think just because realizing that there were only four of us as adults, but it's been really beautiful to see so many more families of different cultures moving into the area, so that's been glorious. But yeah, I mean, pleasant surprise having like almost 40 kids and probably more, and that's just our third through fifth grade. You know, there, there was some good planning going through and, and mm -hmm. figuring out how to, how to set the guidelines, you know, which kids do we think will feel comfortable having these discussions or you know, how do we set sort of like a little age you know, yeah. mm -hmm. I think that seemed to help a little bit. But then the, the tricky part is I feel like we have some kindergartners who want to join or some first graders yeah. whose families are hearing about it and, and wondering what we can do to kind of support the little ones in that too, which is neat. And I like that you talked about unmasking because I feel like that was a big part of it and kind of going in and unsure of how comfortable the kids would feel with each other because it's third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders. Some are in the same class, some are not in the same class, some have never met each other before, and they're only coming together just because they share this really cool piece with their backgrounds and experiences. It's interesting comparing it to if that child were sitting in their regular classroom and they're 
teacher was giving them a writing assignment about their hopes and dreams versus us having a little bit more unmasked, frank discussion with the BIPOC group and asking them that same mm-hmm. question, right? Like, what are you hoping for the future and things like that? It was really interesting to see. It's like they all just like laser point zoomed yeah. in to like things related to maybe how they were treated or how they saw other people being treated, like kids sharing worries about their families and like having enough money for gas or having enough money for this or this is really hard right now. I don't picture them just getting up in the middle of their general ed classroom and being like, hey, I also worry about this. I found that also, like, it seemed to me there were some kids in there and, like, some of them I had taught in previous years, either in my intervention class or in my main class. It was neat to see that even the most reluctant, as they call it, of <laughs> readers and readers, everybody felt safe to put something down and, like, as a teacher to see like 100% participation in just like a small task, like writing down a hope or a dream on something feels pretty fantastic. You know, Mm -hmm. that everybody felt good enough to do that. It was cool. It was beautiful. Yeah. So was this last year, the first year of this student union at the elementary school? Yeah. Pilot year. Yeah. Um, I think the middle school started was it the year before us? Yeah, middle school, high school, same time. And I know we were feeling concerned just because like my daughter was in the one at the middle school. And there were some questions being brought up, but mainly by families and community yeah. members, you know, about how to make non-BIPOC students feel accepted and things like that. So we, I feel like there was a little bit of a, ooh, like how's it going to go with this? Because we have even younger kids and you know, we kind of need like permission slips for everything just mm-hmm. to keep it. But this seemed to mostly go okay. Yeah, I would say it, it took a little bit to get it off the ground because, like, at the elementary level, I think we have like six different lunch periods. It's too hard to try to get the kids together during those shared moments. But it worked out. I'm not sure what kind of changes are going to happen this next school year, like possibly moving it to an after-school thing, but. Are you comfortable sharing some of the pushbacks or challenges in getting through the union together? You just want people to be educated and you want them to learn a little bit more about why is there a need for a BIPOC affinity group? What does this mean for a child who needs to go into something like this or wants to go to something like this? That is not meant to be an exclusive club. It also means that adults are going to have to have some hard conversations with their kids or with their students. So we know one piece of pushback kind of related to that was adults just asking, well, well, what do I do if I feel uncomfortable talking about this with the rest of my class of why some kids are going and why some aren't? That kind of makes me think back to like that first question too, because I'm noticing that because of my own experiences and it makes me feel like, well, I want to have that discussion then Mm -hmm. if it's going to be uncomfortable. Or in my mind, I think, well, what a glorious time if the BIPOC kiddos in your class are in this other safe space where they're free to share their thoughts. Then, like, what a beautiful time to work with the rest of the population in your class on what it means to be an ally. And, and why are those kids going? And let's talk about the history related to that. I feel like those would be some wonderful pieces to have in place. And I think it's hard. You want to have empathy also, otherwise the conversation can't happen. And it's hard for people to even reflect on their own experiences. Kind of like a fish in water type thing. 
they don't actually realize that we're not all having the same perspectives. As a, the largest settler population country in the history of the world, it's odd that it's so apparent that race is a huge factor, you know, gender, class, all these different types of things and why it's always the elephant in the room type situation. But so many other people have to walk through life, like how I was saying earlier with like the masks and the code switching, it's omnipresent for other people. So to me, it's like that conversation is easy to have. But I get that, like if you don't ever participate in anything other than your idea of what culture is and you see other people doing something that is not in your presence or it's kind of like that matter out of place thing, you know, it's like a, a hair in your suit. You're like, what? What's going on? <laughs> Come into distance, they can't be there. It could be your own hair. People's reaction though, you know, is so visceral, it's physical. I think the earlier me in life would get very upset and I, I still do. <laughs> you know, but I have to I I try to be aware of that and go, Okay, well how how does this conversation need to happen? How can we make sure that everybody is getting that complex conversation and the skills are literally is the dialogue. We have to create the space, the milieu, so that those dialogues can constantly happen. But like this country is getting more diverse as we move on into the future. So it's an ever-present thing. You can't disclude it from the conversation in academics or just in these kids' lives to have that conversation. So it's my dream that I'll get all the teachers, yeah. all the educators, the families feel it's appropriate, you know? I realize that other people are having those conversations all the time, constantly, mm -hmm. because they have to, yeah. not because it's a want. Yeah. You know, it's a need for some communities. But it's good, you know? Yeah, this was like the first steps. We're probably gonna have to continue to explain why this is a positive experience for kids and educators alike. Like, it was really positive for me. Even <laughs> with the craziness of like, you know, <laughs> one of our colleagues, you know, having to take attendance, people were going, are we ready, are we ready? You know, that teacher experience, but like, sometimes we were in it, it was just fun. It just felt like a bunch of kids were, you know, your nieces and nephews and the kids are coming from your family to some big giant hangout sash or something like that at grandma's house or something. I felt like we were being able to talk about these really beautiful and cerebral things and like pointing out perspectives that they don't know either, but from other communities of color perspectives on things like traditions and language, different viewpoints and stuff like that. But it's interesting though that these kids were so ready to uh, take that in. It was like easy for them, you know? And they're like, yeah. And some were so ready to share. Oh, we just yeah. really wanted to share yeah. who they were, what their cultural mm -hmm. background was. Like, here's why we do this tradition. And I want to dress up for you. And can I, you know, it became so free-flowing that yeah. there were a lot of those requests too. Like, can I, can I talk about this next time? Can I bring my dad? You know, can <laughs> I? It just became glorious. But it, it makes me think about that whole, like, really wanting kids to ask questions and then now we're coming up against adults who don't know what to do when those questions are being asked and they don't want to talk about it. It's almost becoming personal, even though I don't want it to become personal. It's like, yes, I know you're questioning having this group for your students, but now I almost feel like you're questioning us and what our intentions are. That piece has been kind of hard, too, with your colleagues revealing themselves kind of in that way. So I would say that that's definitely one little side effect of starting the BIPOC Student Union is 
as you have some naysayers coming and, and saying those things, it's just making your workplace really show itself more. It's like, have you been oh, thinking these things all along? Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, and kind of like how Aaron's saying, I'm like, if I were younger, I would probably get a little saucier. <laughs> Instead, it just creates that awkwardness of, okay, I see where you stand. Cool, I'm still here to support the heck out of the kids that you have in there. And maybe even more so because you're not going to be the one who wants to answer the questions, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But yikes, you know, especially being in a small school in a small district, you're trying to figure out who your allies are all the time. I feel like there's this strange about the attitude of what's a difficult conversation or a difficult lesson and what's an easy one. Because for me, like, math makes no sense. Like, <laughs> learning math or just, like, basic history, things like that stuff that is normal <laughs> in school, those are difficult. And if you have kids that are really stressed out to a point where you have to acknowledge that education can be traumatic for students, mm-hmm. then, like, how does that not apply when we're talking about things that are, like, really happening like immediately especially when it can open up good things as well because you said like the students coming to the group to the BIPOC student union they would like also want to share interesting things about their life like I did this I have this I feel like a lot of education sounds like is difficult but once you get through certain hurdles it can be pretty wonderful yeah is it also like related to that like it's either black or white perspective right mm-hmm. it's like Okay, I'm, I'm comfortable teaching you about math because there is that one, like, right answer and mm-hmm. you're going to get it, you know, kind of thing mm-hmm. versus having a conversation that's going to involve emotions and your treatment of people and history, which is not necessarily black or white either. Mm-hmm. I think the longer I've been in the career, the more I have tried to at least make those spaces in the classroom more dynamic and more participatory, you know. That's that critical analytical thinking process, you know, like expose some stuff and give them the reins where it becomes more like, yeah, mentoring and you're along for the ride too, guiding it, you know, so the kids can have their own conclusions and ownership of like their thought process, like how they came up with the solution in math or how they figured out science and physics and stuff like that because they got the chance to stumble upon whatever experimentation was needed to prove it and however that looks yeah that's beautiful cherry mentioned trying to do a screening of the documentary the right to read to show the teachers but not very many people showed up to watch that documentary which you felt was important for educating people on how like different disenfranchised students struggle with reading and how that follows them into the rest of the life. And so here at the Talk and Story podcast, we are prepared to try and support you having a showing of that in some sort of way. If you want to talk on that so that the listeners can also check out that document. Oh yeah, that would be amazing. I'll give a little bit of background too. Just yeah, like on my own journey, just being... This is going to be year 20 of teaching, which is kind of exciting for me. And it wasn't until my 17th year of teaching that I started learning about the whole knowledge base related to the science of reading. It's not a curriculum, but just basically, here's all the knowledge that has been compiled through studies and research and evidence-based practices and things like that related to how a child would learn how to read. And then you kind of couple that with the whole fact that we have functional MRIs now and other ways that we can view what's happening in the brain when a child's learning to read. So having 
so many different types of kids in my classrooms over the years. I, I had a kiddo in my class who I had over a four year span and I just felt like I couldn't get through to him. And I wasn't sure my methods are failing, this isn't working. And, and he ended up going with his mom and he got diagnosed with dyslexia. And this is for me as a teacher going, okay, like I've heard the word, I hear it thrown around. I don't know what this means for my teaching instruction. And because I'm very hyper obsessed with learning that I decided to take that and the pandemic hit. So I went back to school. It took about two to three years. So now I'm certified in dyslexia therapy, but it was so beautiful and eye-opening the things that I learned about how these instructional methods have been around for over 40 years. The International Dyslexia Association promotes it, all these other things, but it kind of goes back to that whole bit of things trickling so slowly into the education realm that it's still just barely coming into our school district. So I decided, I think that's just because of my personality, I wanted to jump on it right away and go learn about it and try to help this one kid in like the five months left that I had him with me. And then I started tutoring after that just because I, I figured, well, when, when he goes to middle school, who's helping him there? You know, kind of thing. And it's been really neat to see over the years how something as simple as just shifting my instructional methods would benefit like all the learners in my classroom, not just him. But it was something that he needed so badly that I felt so bad that with my years of being a teacher, it's almost like I was withholding that from him because I wanted to keep teaching the same way that I was taught that I assumed happened through osmosis, kind of. So when I heard about this documentary, I started listening more to podcasts that featured Kareem Weaver. And his big thing, I, I had been talking to people for a long time about literacy being the social justice issue, like once I started learning and really getting connected with it. And then to hear him say it, <laughs> like just it was like, oh, okay, I want to listen more to, to a lot of things that he's sharing. So he went through his own journey with his daughter who has dyslexia and worked with a lot of people, including LeVar Burton, who you know, everyone loves <laughs> because of Reading Rainbow. And they decided to create this documentary called The Right to Read. And if you're curious about it, you can go on therighttoread.org. What they're trying to do is just gain some traction in this whole movement. Okay, the education realm is slow to take this in, so we kind of need to like put it in their faces. So Kareem's going around and talking all over the place. And then they're also trying to use this documentary to also spread the word about how inequitable our instructional practices are for children of color, for children who are coming from poverty, and then children who have some kind of neurodiversity. And often some kids have all of that yeah. Yeah, piled on. So I just kept dreaming about seeing this documentary, but didn't have the money to host a private showing locally. And so in honor of Juneteenth, the producers decided to release it for one day. Just on that one Monday, it'll be streaming for free. I got really excited. I wrote to like the whole staff, you know, said, I know like school's getting out. It's kind of a weird time, but come to my room and let's watch this and learn. And it was such a bummer. It was really disheartening because I, I know people have things to do too, but I had about five people who came from Chimicum from their school district because I have a friend who worked there. She brought her whole kindergarten team with her and then like two other people from our staff. It was still powerful and lovely and we watched the documentary together in my room and then we had wonderful conversations after. And we, we kind of left on fire. That's what you hope is that when you have those conversations, everyone's really, you know, 
it was also kind of cool to compare between districts, like what's happening in your district. Like we have baby steps happening, but we feel a little bit farther along than they are. I think in both districts, there's like a handful you know, of people who are trying to work towards it. So I, I feel like it would be amazing, not just for educators, but I, I want communities to see this documentary. So well, that's what students. the movie is not really for educators, too, because it's yeah. Burton and them. Mm-hmm. It was for caregivers, for people who yeah. are the families of students in the public education mm-hmm. system. Because what Cherry is saying is, it takes forever in public schools for things to trickle down, and sometimes they don't. And so the design of the film is for general populace to go out. Behooves everybody, you know, to go in and see what's happening so that you can ask questions in whatever community you live in about the teaching practices that are going on with your children. But yeah, I mm-hmm. like that the frame of it was not really for educators, although I agree with Terry. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen the film several times now, but like, the broadcast itself was for everybody to have like a bigger picture because I think that's the unfortunate aspect of working in a big bureaucracy like public schools. A lot of it is parents have no idea what's going on. Yeah. There's, just, there's trust and there's a good amount of reason why they should trust because I think they know a lot of us care and stuff like that. But it's designed so the general populace can really be advocates for their students. Mm-hmm. And it just goes back to that whole school-to-prison pipeline that we're trying to prevent. Yeah. Right. So if you're listening, check out The Right to Read. It's an awesome documentary. And then our team, we can see if there's any way that we can see if we can do a showing or something like that, some sort of event. Yeah. We know some people. Oceana's giving the thumbs up. We can figure <laughs> something out. But yeah, for now, if you have access, check out The Right to Read. Yeah. Just look up Kareem Weaver, like his last name's W-E-A-V-E-R. His podcasts are glorious. I mean, he can probably speak a lot more eloquently <laughs> than I can about it. And it's related to all those other issues. It's like, we just need to educate. Folks just need to be educated. My girls and my husband have heard <laughs> so much out of it. But they're on fire, right? It's, it's the kind of thing that they're, they're like, I don't know if I can sit and listen to this podcast, Mom, because it makes me so mad. And it's like, <laughs> it should make you upset, right? So, towards the end of these podcasts, we like to ask who we're interviewing, what are their goals? What do you hope to achieve? This could be professional, personal, could be something related to the BIPOC student union, reading intervention. Maybe it could be something that you're working on or hope to work on. I am really fascinated in continuing on pursuing and evolving myself as an educator with this platform that hopefully has some sustainability with the BSU at the elementary school and figuring out ways to unite the older students also to make it a larger community that can straddle those geographic and age barriers between middle and high school and stuff. When I first got to Port Townsend, there was a couple of teachers that were doing joint projects with the high school and elementary school, and I really had a blast with that. But I can see this platform evolving, and I have no idea what direction it is, but it's fun to have a bunch of like-minded people to work with sharing similar perspectives and it's fun to be on that journey with the kids when they can open their eyes going hey i'm not alone well yeah this is okay so yeah in the immediate future i guess that's my plans i'm also we've been working on title six indian education here in port townsend which is something near and dear to my heart was a teacher on special assignment and did stuff with title six down in san francisco so it's neat to see that evolving too but 
I just like the idea that there are these platforms that seem to have not been present in the recent past, and now these things are just all here. So it's kind of cool. It seems like there's an opportunity to evolve as a community and be a little bit more united about things and still allowing diverse perspective and like where we all come from. I definitely want to continue my work with the BIPOC Student Union, keep encouraging it to grow, keep encouraging the kids to ask questions, and then hopefully it might be the kind of situation where like Aaron and I and the other adults, you know, that we're there, we're just another safe person that you can go to, right? Or maybe we might be the like, safe person in your building that you can go to, to talk about these things that maybe someone wouldn't have perspective on. My goal is to teach everyone to read, so <laughs> I kind of have big dreams, especially now now that I have the knowledge, I really want to do better. It's hard to look back on a lot of the kids who I now realize I, I wasn't able to help at that time. So I just feel like moving forward, I just want to continue to help as many as I can until um, everyone learns how to read. And to continue working to make those kids who have ever felt othered, I want them to feel supported and know that they have someone who's there for them. I think that's most important. Thank you both so much. This has been really awesome. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for including us. What a rich, deep dive into our public educational institutions here in Jefferson County. I thought it was so powerful the way that Aaron and Cherry just really went to some interesting places around what it takes to not just survive these places that are still continue to be ridden with systemic oppression, but to thrive. I was really uplifted by the stories of hope that were offered in this episode. And if you ever get a chance to see the film, the right to read, all of us highly recommend it. And now we do a little shift from the traditional educational systems into the alternative educational space with our next guest, Jerry June. We hope you'll join us. We appreciate you for listening to this episode of Talk and Story. Music is provided with permission by Ben Wilson and Camilla J. Talk and Story is a project of well-organized and has enjoyed the support of the Port Townsend Arts Commission, Jefferson Community Foundation, Finn River Farm and Cidery, and the Community Equity Initiative, as well as private, in-kind, and monetary donations. If you'd like to support us, please go to well-organized.org to make a donation to the Talk and Story podcast. That's well-organized.org. Thank you.